Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes, completely eradicating, not just reducing, completely eradicating. I believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for Mondays, not Fridays and get to do their most meaningful work. The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content, but instead shift the context under which you operate. This podcast is titled Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. In each episode, I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices, which are not always easy and comfortable, but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves, and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action, as those were the moments when you chose leadership. At the end, I will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast. And with that, let's get started. Jay Goldman is the co-founder and CEO of Sensai Labs and the co-author of The Decoded Company. At Sensai Labs, they are building smarter workplace solutions that people love. In the interview, we talk about the importance of continuously learning and growing over time and the challenges as you move from an IC role to first being a manager and then being a manager of managers. He shares the importance of EQ as well as IQ the important role of self-awareness and how he has learned to do performance management and feedback conversation very differently from most companies. Hi, Jay, and welcome to the Choosing Leadership Podcast. Hi, Samit. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Can you start by sharing a little bit of who you are and what do you do? Yeah, I'm Jay Golden, co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs. We're an enterprise SaaS provider who works with large enterprise around the world with our Conductor platform. Conductor is an enterprise orchestration platform that helps the world's largest organizations to orchestrate their most critical initiatives, typically transformations, post-merger integrations or divestitures, um, procurement supply chain optimizations, cost reductions, ESG programs, those sorts of things. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And before we get into that, can you share a little bit of your backstory, how you got into entrepreneurship, leadership, all of that? I come by entrepreneurship very naturally as my father was a software entrepreneur. And so I really followed in his footsteps. I grew up around computers and programming. He had uh, several software companies that did very well. And so I saw that as a model for how to build businesses and how to think about growth and entrepreneurship and got to spend time around him and around his partners and those companies. So it was a very natural path for me to follow to where I am today. Thank you. Can you share or remember any one or two instances uh, which have shaped you like uh, from your early days or you have drawn the lessons which you continue to still apply? 
I really like to think of that path as constant evolution, and it's an opportunity to always be learning. And I think that's really one of the things that rewards me. Different people have different motivations that drive them forward. For me, learning is one of those. So I always look for opportunities to be learning and growing. And there's lots of those across my time developing as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a software executive, all of those different pieces. I think there's some key points along there where bigger challenges have come up. Sometimes those challenges feel insurmountable in the moment, but when you look back, you can see the amount of growth and development that's happened in them. So starting my first company, which was a web design studio called Radiant Core, and learning how to be a leader and a manager of people, I think there are two inflection points as a leader that are probably the most notable in your path. The first is when you become a manager for the first time. And the second is when you become a manager of managers for the first time or a leader of leaders. We don't love the term manager, so we tend towards the term leader instead. And so those points in my career where I first became a leader, Radiant Core was relatively small. We ended up selling the business um, to one of our clients and joining the client's team when we were about 10 or 12 people. So we only grew to sort of that size. And so I was the leader, but didn't have leaders underneath me. And then ultimately when I joined Click, which is the parent company for Sensei Labs, had the opportunity to become a leader of leaders. And those inflection points teach you a lot about how to think about your own time, how to think about the leverage effect of your time. So where an hour of your own effort will have the biggest outcome for the organization and for the people who report to you. And how to start to get yourself more and more on the business instead of in the business. So as an individual contributor, you're completely in the business. As a leader, you're half on the business and half in the business. And as a leader of leaders, you need to start to get to the point where you are on the business almost all the time and not in the business. And those are really why those two inflection points are really challenging for people to kind of wrap their head around. And I would say definitely points in my career where I can see that a large amount of growth happened. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I also know from my work with a lot of entrepreneurs that many entrepreneurs are also very self-driven and they want to prove. And that is because they find it difficult to let go and then work on the company rather than in the company, even if even when their company grows. And then that obviously presents growing pains. So that's one thing which I wanted to ask, right? How have you learned or what their painful moments during that transition? Uh, and then I will ask my second question after that. The most humbling moments are the moments where I've let go of something and my team has done a much better job than I would have done with it. And those are the moments that teach you that that tendency toward I need to do this or I need to be directly in charge of it is not going to produce as good an outcome as it would to really step back and let go and let other people take that on. Um, for us in our journey as a business, when we spun, when we actually, we only spun out of Click later, but when we started to take an internal platform that Click had built for itself, um, we wrote a book that came out in 2014 called The Decoded Company, which to our great surprise went on to become a New York Times bestseller, gave us an incredible opportunity to speak all over the world about the ideas in the book, which is really about how it sort of, it divided up into three principles. And it's about how any organization can use technology as a coach and a teacher to help drive their people to better outcomes, 
how you can have data as a sixth sense to augment your five primary senses, and how you can engineer your ecosystem to build a better attractor of talent and engager of people in that organization. So we wrote that book in 2014. We went on the speaking tour. Everybody everywhere that we spoke wanted to know where they could buy the software that we were talking about, and you couldn't. It was an internal platform. And so we decided to commercialize that and to turn it into what ultimately today became Conductor. But in that journey from when we first started commercializing Click's internal platform to developing this app on top of it that today is our product Conductor was one of those moments where my team had an idea to solve a problem for a customer. They ran with it. I actually didn't have that much to do with that piece of development of the product. And that ultimately today has become the product that is driving our business forward. And it was one of those kind of humbling moments of realizing this may not have got to nearly as good an outcome if I had been directly involved. Their ability to take that and run with it is what got it to the point where it became our primary product today. Thank you for adding that. Right, and it's so easy to sometimes look uh, in the rear view mirror and see or frame a story as such, but many times we can actually feel threatened if our team is doing better than us or if there is somebody who is smarter than us in the room. So it also takes a certain level of groundedness or maybe confidence to really giving others space, listening to their ideas, admitting we are wrong. So can you share how have you built that and uh, like what would you suggest to somebody who feels threatened by somebody else's success and not because there's something bad, but it's just a subconscious desire or something playing out. The We had a realization early on at Click that we would be successful if we continued to attract smarter and smarter people with better talent, maybe not better as a judgmental call, but with deeper talent or specializations that didn't exist. And you can get there by building a culture in which you attract people who have been the smartest person in the room for most of their career, but actually don't want to be the smartest person in the room all the time. So people at that level really value the opportunity to learn from their colleagues, but also the opportunity to teach them sometimes. You want a balance between the two. So if, um, if you've ever read Drive by Dan Pink, he explores the three different levers that typically drive people, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And so mastery is, I want to learn things and I want to become masterful at doing them. But it also has a component of it of, I want to be the masterful person who can teach other people. So that balance there means that we did a really good job at Click and at Sensei Labs as well of attracting people who have, for most of their career until they joined us, been the smartest person in the room but weren't always necessarily happy about that. They didn't have that balance where they could learn from their peers. Now in our environments, they aren't always the smartest person and that gives them that ability to continue to master new things and learn about them. I would equate it to, you can't become a better tennis player or a better chess player by playing people who are at your level or below. You can only improve by playing with people who are above your level and who you can learn from. And so very similar sort of approach within our organizations. The second piece of that is creating a trust environment where you have psychological safety and where you can believe that the organization is acting in your best interest as well as the organization's best interest, where those are aligned. And so that gives you the safety to believe 
that especially as a leader, your success is no longer about your individual contribution. It's actually about the success of your team. And so the more that you can make your team successful, the more your success increases. And we look at that and think about it in a term that we use called the leadership pipeline. So the way that it works in practice is as a leader, I can't move up to a new role unless I have a person ready to move into my role. And that person can't move up unless they have a person ready to move into their role, et cetera, et cetera. Which means that we should all as leaders be thinking about who on my team would step into my role if and when I get promoted to the next step up. And that biases you in the direction of, I should ensure the success of my team over my own success so that I'm ready to move up into the next role when I have that chance. Thank you. Thank you for adding that uh, part about psychological safety, but also how you have you built it in the culture itself. Yeah. The second thing which you mentioned was uh, about technology, right? And uh, I think technology and people, especially when you move to management, is quite a shift because many people who start with technology are quite attached to the technology itself, right? And it's a lot about like coding or computers or logic or using your analytical skills. But when it comes to people, many times uh, like the same techniques which we use with computers often backfire with people because their listening, emotions, all of that play start to play a big role. So how have you evolved like as an entrepreneur, as a technologist to now like maybe taking a back seat or maybe taking a very different See it where you're not directly involved with anything, but you're still the captain of the ship. How has that played out for you? Yeah, it's a great question because there's a really careful balance needed between uh, IQ and EQ, if you want to think of it that way. So IQ being more traditional forms of intelligence, especially analytical intelligence. And uh, as we get deeper into data science and AI and those sorts of elements, we start to value people who think in that way, who have that approach, who can think in a structured data way or in an analytical way and they're when they're looking at data and technology. The other side of that coin, and I don't wanna say the opposite side because lots of people have both of them, so it's not that you have one or the other, but the sort of other side of that is emotional intelligence, and that's really that ability to relate to people, to understand them, to be able to be empathetic towards people and to be able to recognize and support them in a way that's valuable. There are definitely people who move more in one direction and more in the other direction. So there are very analytical people who are extremely intelligent in that traditional sense, but who maybe don't have as much EQ. There are also e people who are deep on the EQ side who maybe don't have as much of the traditional and analytical and data-driven sort of piece. You need both in order to be able to build an organization. And so you need some people who are deep into the more, I'm going to use the term IQ, it's not to say that people who are high in EQ aren't smart, but people who are more in that analytical sense. You also need people who are heavy into the e EQ side, and you need a a set of people who kind of balance the two and are able to be the bridge between them in a way. And so identifying for yourself as a leader and just as an individual contributor in an organization where you have that balance and where you're able to fill in a gap. So where you might say, you know, I actually as a leader, I'm heavier on the IQ side of that. And so I might want to support myself with people who are heavier on the EQ side or vice versa. You might say, 
I'm actually really good at the people side of this and at the EQ side of this, but maybe less good at the analytical side. Let me support myself with people who are on that side. For myself, I actually am kind of the product of my parents. So my mom is an artist and my dad was a software engineer. And so I've ended up in between. So I sit sort of in the middle of that spectrum with a bit of a balance, which doesn't mean that I'm really good at either one of them. It just means that I sit in the middle of the spectrum. And so I've got good EQ and can understand people, but maybe there are people out there who are deeper on that side and I can engage with and be supported by them on the EQ side and also on the IQ side, although I did a partial computer science degree in university, I'm not as deep onto that by any means as lots of the members of our team who are more on the engineering side and the data science and analytical side. And so I can support myself with those people. And it's really important to figure out where you sit there, not with no judgment about where you sit. It One end is not better than the other end and the middle is not better than the ends, but figuring out where you sit with some self-awareness and ability to assess that, maybe with some help from honest friends and colleagues, if you can ask them that question and help to understand it if you don't have the self-awareness to identify yourself, and then look for opportunities to be better supported by people at other points along that spectrum. Thank you. Thank you, Jay, for sharing that. What I am also listening in that is also a more personalized approach to every person, every leader, rather than a one-size-fits-all situation, like depending on the role or your level in the organization. And you also write about this uh, in your book, especially when we see organizational practices, especially when we see HR, like there is a lot of things which we have carried forward from like the factory age and uh, which treat people as units of production and then if you have 50 software engineers or if you have 50 managers, then all of them are expected to be basically the carbon copy of a job description. Uh, and if you don't have a skill too bad for yourself, you are an underperformer. So can you share some of those uh, organizational practices which you think are outdated in today's day and age? And what are the replacements, right? What are the alternates? And what are some of the principles behind them? Yeah, one size fits all is a great one to start with because when you think about where that comes from, and you think about sort of industrial revolution era companies, Ford is a good example. You are growing a company to scales that have rarely been seen. So not that they've never been seen. And when you think about maybe um, militaries historically, you would get to, the, to similar numbers of people, but also a good example of where one size fits all was absolutely the rule. So you had to fit a very particular uh, level and designation in the organization a particular set of skills, and it was very much a machine. So you were a cog at a particular level that had a particular shape, and you had to be that cog and operate that way. Part of the reason why is scale. Without techno modern technology, computers, data science, those sorts of things, you actually can't scale to that size without making everything interchangeable because you just don't have the ability to tailor policies to the individual at that sort of scale until you get into a more modern for us age of data science and computers and software. What changes at that point is the ability to look at a large data set in real time and then make decisions based off of that. So if you look at the latest sort of AI innovations like ChatGPT and others, that's exactly what they're doing. They're analyzing in real time a very large data set and then are able to produce output that's tailored to a particular situation. 
you can take that same technology and you don't even need that full level of sophistication and you can use it to understand a particular individual within an organization and then you might tailor some of your policies and approaches to that person rather than forcing them to be a particular peg that fits into a particular hole. So an example of it might be something like when you think about repeated processes in an organization, and I'll use an example here from Click. So Click is a marketing agency. And one of the challenges that comes up in marketing agencies and professional service organizations on a regular basis is what we refer to in the book as the early start problem. So the problem is you are engaged with a client, you have a great relationship with them, they trust you, you trust them. They say, hey, we need you to do this new piece of work. Let's say that the piece of work will end up being worth $100,000 in services to the organization. So they know that going through and getting the paperwork approved for you to start that work is going to take three weeks worth of time because they're a large organization. Three weeks is probably aggressive, but let's just say that it's going to take three weeks. The piece of work is going to take four weeks. So either you wait three weeks to get started and then spend four weeks, or you start now. And by the time the paperwork's approved, you're almost finished and you have one more week to finish that piece of work. This is a problem in most organizations because the one size fits all policy will say any work orders above a certain threshold in this example, let's call it $50,000 have to be approved for early starts and they have to go to the CFO for approval. So now I'm the person who owns this account in this professional service organization, and I have to go find a bunch of people to sign off on getting this thing done. We realized here that actually the work history and ability for people to prove that they know how to manage a portfolio of business is a better indicator than going to find the CFO who has no real idea about this client and how trustworthy they are and all of those sorts of things. And so we built into our internal system at Click some logic around if you manage a portfolio that has proven over time that it can be profitable for the agency, you can early start work orders that are at a much higher threshold. And that threshold is adapted to the person based on how much, basically based on their track record and how much portfolio they manage overall. And so I might actually be able to approve a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollar work order to early start, whereas somebody else in the organization may only have a fifty thousand dollar threshold because they're brand new and they haven't built up that organizational trust yet. That's a good example of where adapting away from one size fits all towards a personalized policy that takes that person's work history and ability into account can allow the business to expand much faster and be able to grow and do better service for its clients. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And what what could be analogy of that applied to performance management? I think that's another big source of friction and frustration in organizations. Yeah, so we're not big fans of traditional performance management. If you've read the book and in have you'll understand that very quickly when you read the book. Uh, we beat up quite heavily in the book on the annual performance review. It is really a terrible practice that has been inflicted on us by generations of management thinking that came out of a very different era. So think about the annual performance review for anyone who's listening who has suffered through this process. Everyone hates the process. The people who run the process hate it. So the managers who have to now spend all of this time doing write-ups for each one of the members of their team, that write-up hits them all at the same time. So we have 
typically speaking, we have one annual performance review cycle for the entire organization. So anyone who's new that started in that 12 month period gets less than a one year review. And I have a team of 10 people. I have to write 10 reviews now that all hit at exactly the same time. So I know I'm gonna lose a huge chunk of my available bandwidth every year when we go through the cycle. Then organizations make this worse because they wanna do 360 reviews, which was very much a, way, a sort of popular way of thinking about how to spread that feedback around so it wasn't just the manager, but we're getting reviews from all the people that they work with, except that those 10 people on my team probably have a pretty high overlap with the set of people that they work with. So when I go ask for 360 reviews, I'm impacting a whole bunch of people in the organization who now also have to contribute feedback to those same 10 people or some subset of them, but they're being asked about other people on other teams. So what we end up doing here is grinding the organization to a halt once a year so that we can go through this exercise of gathering feedback. Because this process is really so hated by everyone involved, most of that feedback is, what is the minimum number of characters that I can contribute to the box in this piece of software so that it stops pestering me to fill in this form? which means I'm not getting real feedback from any of the people that I'm asking. And there's all kinds of politics at play here. So if I'm asking for feedback from all of these people, they're not necessarily providing constructive feedback that's gonna be helpful. Maybe they've all agreed amongst each other that they're just gonna say nice things about each other. There's all kinds of politics that come into play, partly because we also typically make the mistake of connecting this annual feedback exercise to an annual raise cycle. So what we're saying is we've got to do some sort of effort to understand performance, and we're going to connect it to how much of a raise people get or how much of a bonus they get paid out. So everybody in my team knows that if they all say nice things about each other, then they probably all get paid more. That is not going to give us real feedback about job performance, and it's going to bias that heavily. As the leader, I may not be able to give real feedback to people because I also know how big my raise pool is, and I know that I can't give everyone on the team the raise that I maybe want to give them. I also don't want to give somebody feedback that says, hey, you did a really great job, and then not be able to give them a commensurate raise or bonus or whatever. And so in the end, I end up actually downplaying the feedback I might want to give them or giving them different feedback so that I can justify what I'm able to afford from a raise or a bonus perspective. And then the last factor in all of this is we do it way too infrequently. So because we're only doing it on a 12-month cycle, we end up actually with a very strong recency bias in that data. Unless you do a really good job of taking notes throughout the year, and frankly, nobody does, but unless you do a really good job of that, when you sit down to do that review, even despite best intentions, you're probably giving the feedback on the last quarter that just happened, not really on 12 months, because that's what's in your head and it's the examples you can think of and it's what's available to you. So in the end, we're running a very expensive process that grinds productivity to a halt once a year. We're not providing real feedback that's actually helpful to people's jobs. And so we're costing the business a ton of money and we're not getting to an outcome that's better performance. If you think about that very differently and you say, first of all, let's disconnect performance feedback from compensation. Those two cycles can happen completely separately. Then you look at this feedback that is going to drive real performance is given as close to the incident that where the feedback was generated as possible so you can course correct as early as possible. So in the book, we talk about something that we call the rule of five degrees. And the rule is really simple to understand. Imagine that you're on a boat 
and you're setting out from one side of a large lake and you're traveling to a destination on the other side of the lake. If you're five degrees off course when you leave your side of the lake, then if you course correct early, the course correction is very small. But that angle gets magnified as you traverse the lake. So on the other side of the lake, if you haven't course corrected, you could be miles or kilometers away from the destination that you thought you were headed to. Feedback works exactly the same way. If I sit down with a member of my team and I give them feedback on a weekly basis, then we're making lots of very small five-degree course corrections throughout our journey across the lake together. When we get to the other end, we will be on course and I'll have achieved our objective. If I wait once a year to give them feedback, we're almost on the other side of the lake before I tell them. And now that course correction is a huge difference in how much they need to correct their behavior towards where we want them to end up. So we moved away at Click and at Sensei Labs entirely from the idea of annual performance reviews. We've disconnected compensation from performance feedback. We drive toward an objective of weekly or bi-weekly one-on-ones between all of our leaders and their the people who report to them. We try to give some structure and guidance around those one-on-ones to help them be really f- performance feedback oriented and to guide people towards conversations that are going to drive towards that and also towards career planning conversations. So understanding not just where we are from a course correction perspective, but potentially resetting what the destination on the other side of the lake is. Eventually this metaphor breaks down completely, but if you sort of stick with it for a little bit longer, we might say, hey, we're halfway across the lake, but maybe actually our original destination isn't the right destination. Let's re you know, decide where we're going to go on this trip and let's continue towards a different destination together. And then we're making an intentional course correction together where we've both understood that we're changing our path so that one of us isn't still headed to the original destination and the other one's headed off to a new point. And so that's really the value in involving coaching conversations in there. And all of that is moving away from one size fits all toward highly personalized conversations around where you are around your feedback and around where you're headed to. Thank you for adding that. How does the compensation or the rewards part fit into this process? So there's a fairness piece to this, which is when you don't have some sort of structure around compensation, especially at different job levels, then you open up the door for unfairness, let's say, in that compensation model between people. So as much as we want to end up away from one size fits all, there are places in this where moving to completely personalize doesn't create opportunity and equality across that. And we'll talk, I'm sure, throughout this conversation about a lot of careful balances, EQ, IQ being, for example, one of them, but that balance from a comp perspective between a rigid structure of salary bands, which you typically will see in large enterprise, for example, toward personalized compensation models that are highly tailored to the individual, one of the things you lose as you move towards the personalized end is the sense that people at the same level in the organization with the same experience and the same background should end up at the same pay, give or take. And so it opens up the door for someone who's a better negotiator to end up at a far better comp level than someone else at the same level, or for biases in individual leaders when they're setting the pay for their team, it may be a bias towards, as we've traditionally seen, men over women. It may be racial bias. It could be all kinds of 
conscious or unconscious bias that can end up influencing that comp model. So we try to find a balance between those. And the way we've done that at Sensei Labs is we've got one giant spreadsheet, which is our matrix of roles in the organization. And so for each of our teams, each of their roles is in a column in that spreadsheet. Everyone has access to the spreadsheet. And then in the rows of that spreadsheet, we have our Sensei values. For us, it was really important, even at a very early stage, and this is part of the concept of engineered ecosystems in Decoded, as soon as you start a company and hire your first team member, so now there are two people working in the organization, you have culture. And most startups don't think about culture that early, and culture catches up with them later on when they get to some sort of critical mass of people and they start to realize that they should think about this stuff. But the truth is you have it as soon as you have two people working together. You can either be really intentional about it from the beginning, or it can catch up with you much later on. And now you have to make big cultural adjustments to correct for those problems. So we started off with Sensei, even as a team inside of Click, and then really as we spun out and became our own organization, with wanting to build a set of values that we all agreed with that we could then on top of that, build all of our approaches to people and structure. And so we wanted to keep it really easy to remember. We took the word sensei and we defined it as an acronym of the six values that make up our culture. And so for us, the six values are being selfless, being empathetic, being nimble, being skilled, being entrepreneurial, and having integrity, spells the word sensei, very easy for everybody to remember. Then we took those six values and defined them with a, an agreed to shared definition, which everyone has access to. It's It lives, it, we're a Microsoft 365 team, so it lives in our SharePoint and everyone has access to that. And then we use those definitions to inform everything that we do from a people approach. So when we write job descriptions, they connect back to those values. When we structure in our um, talent system, the survey that someone does after an interview, it's structured into those sensei values. So how selfless were they? How entrepreneurial? We've built interview guides that connect questions and the best answers to them back to the values so that people can ask questions and get a fairly consistent set of data about those. And we continue to refine those as we do more interviewing. We have built them into that role matrix. So the rows in the matrix are the sensei values. The columns are each role in the organization. And the intersection of those tells you for someone who is maybe, let's say, um, a software engineer level one, what's the expected behaviors that you should see for them in being selfless, in being empathetic and nimble and skilled and entrepreneurial and having integrity so that everyone in the company can look at that and say, okay, I'm at that level in the organization today, and I can see what behaviors I should be developing and working on, but I can also see what the next level up behaviors are. And I might start to work on those even before I'm ready to move into that role. And it gives you a framework for coaching conversations and career development conversations between you and that person that works for you. Thank you. So compensation gets tied to all of this. Mm -hmm. And so what we've designed around that is a salary band for each of those roles so that we can ensure that across that role, we have some equity in pay for anybody who's there, but it still gives our leaders the ability to have some flexibility there. Someone entering the role might be at the lower end of that band and might move up through the band through a series of raises before they get promoted to the next role. It also gives a sort of reference of 
sometimes we might hire someone who's overqualified for a role and they may come in at the higher end of that band, even at the beginning of it. So there's some flex in there, some ability to tailor it and personalize it, but still some guidance for our leaders so that we're ensuring some equality across the roles. Thank you for explaining that in detail, Jay. Uh, and as you move forward, right, in your dream, in your Sensei Labs uh, for the future, what are some of those challenges that you see for yourself going forward? We're built into, actually, it's in the definition of some of those values, um, particularly entrepreneurial. We are always smaller than we will be in the future. And so as a leader, that means that I will always have a larger and larger team to lead with more complexity. We are a very international company. So we're based in and headquartered in Toronto, but we have customers all over the world. And so that's already created a very global organization, even at our current size, we're about 70 people today. And so more and more of our hiring in the future will be international hiring for us. So outside of Toronto and outside of Canada. And so that creates added complexity in an organization in thinking through some of it purely from a logistical perspective, the legal aspects, the tax implications, the currency implications of having people in different areas in the world. So that's one sort of factor. But from a culture perspective, you really have to think about it in terms of how do you scale a business where nobody feels like a second-class citizen. So despite the fact that we have a head office in Toronto, if you happen to live in Brazil or India or Pakistan, where we have team members today, then you don't feel as though you're a second-class citizen. And that is really partly in, been an outcome of what's happened during COVID and over the life of the pandemic as we've moved to be a hybrid first organization. We have, a, uh, we actually try to stay away from the word policy. So internally we have FAQs and the FAQs guide what happens. Policies dictate one size fits all, but an FAQ provides enough structure and guidance for people to understand how we approach something and think about it. And then if there's a question that's not answered, they'll ask the question and we have a, huge, a bunch of different ways for them to ask those questions. And then we can think about them and add them to the FAQ. So it evolves over time. So our FAQ on this is actually called work from anywhere. And so the guidance there is really you can work from anywhere that you want to work as long as you're able to get your work done and interact with your team. And so we've had team members who have asked if it's okay for them to go work from somewhere else for a month. Absolutely. You may have to do some time zone shifting and that kind of thing, but it is really a work from anywhere policy. And that allows us to encourage hiring anywhere in the world where the best talent sits and where we're able to bring them on and onboard them and create the right approaches to that from a culture perspective. So that's one of our big challenges and one that I think about quite a lot is that international growth and expansion mm -hmm. over the next few years. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I love that distinction between providing a guidance and then giving people autonomy and trust rather than dictating something through a rule or policy. Then one thing which also happens when people are so disconnected and hybrid, we get to lose that personal touch. Right. Can you share something about yourself, which most people do not know? Like to bring that up, put you on the spot. <laughs> um, sometimes we'll play the game Two Truths and a Lie. I don't know if you've ever come across this game before. It's a good icebreaker game. So everybody in the group will say two things that are true about themselves and one thing that's a lie. And then uh, that the goal is to try to guess which one of the statements is a lie. And it gives you kind of an opportunity to get to know people a little bit better. So my two truths and a lie is usually that I've written a New York Times bestseller, which 
we know is true because we've had that part of the conversation. Uh, I once had a very odd opportunity to drive a Lamborghini from Denmark to Sweden for lunch, which is actually true. It was a very weird uh, occurrence in my life, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then my lie is that I speak three languages. I actually speak two languages. So I speak English and French fluently, but I that's the lie that I usually give. No one ever picks the lie though, because they usually pick on the New York Times bestseller. But yeah, yeah, I think I could have picked because the Denmark to Sweden was so specific, and I know there is a bridge connecting between those two countries. We actually took the ferry, but you yeah. can also take a bridge. Yeah. Yes. Can you share a bit more about how that came about to me? You said uh, it just—it was just one of those opportunities that came along. A friend was participating in the Gumball Three Thousand and gave me yeah. the chance to come and do um, just one drive with. No, I wasn't even part of the actual Gumball, but it was sort of from before it had started. It was starting in Copenhagen, and so I got to go over and um, spend a bit of time and drive the car, which was a lot of fun. Thank you, thank you for adding that. Right, and before we wrap up, can you? Share for our listeners if they want to find out more about you, what you're up to, what new like practices that you're implementing in your organization, what is the best way for them to do so? We're very public about that stuff from Sensei Labs. So the best way is actually to follow Sensei Labs on various social platforms. LinkedIn's probably the best one because we post a lot of updates there, but you can also follow us on Twitter and our blog, which is actually on our website as well, senseilabs.com. You can follow me on social platforms. I'm at Jay Goldman, J-A-Y-G-O-L-D-M-A-N on pretty much every platform. I don't post a lot and I tend to post about work more than anything else. But if you're looking to follow kind of what's happening with Sensei, that's another good way to do so. You can follow my LinkedIn or on Twitter or other platforms as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jay, for sharing everything that you shared. Uh, and I Thanks want to wish you. you all the best for everything that lies ahead for you. You too. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast. And I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction. Not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of, to make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality and I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved, and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.